Listeners are advised that the following program contains strong language that some may find offensive. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. The silencing of Indigenous women's knowledges is ongoing and it's at the hands of white women. And I think that's the sense of betrayal even in these recent events is that when stuff happens to white women, the world stops. But what about when it happens to black women? Where is the sisterhood really? How do we celebrate International Women's Day when we can't even celebrate Indigenously what that means in our own country? Racism, sexism and gendered violence, centering First Nations women's voices. This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt. In the wake of mass rallies around the country this week, there is growing recognition of the need to amplify the intersectional experiences of First Nations women in the national dialogue. Tonight is about celebrating the importance of the voice of Indigenous women, centering their wisdom and valuing their role and leadership. To do that, I'm joined by two women whose work I've found to be groundbreaking and who have been unwavering in their advocacy for change, but who also, for me, embody the strong leadership role our women continue to play in our community. Chelsea Watergo is an Associate Professor with the Faculty of Health and Behavioural Sciences at the University of Queensland. She has also worked as an Aboriginal health worker and researcher for the past 20 years and is the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Another Day in the Colony. Amy McGuire is a freelance writer and journalist and has previously held roles as a political correspondent for NITV and as editor of the National Indigenous Times. She is currently completing a PhD at the University of Queensland into media representations of violence against Aboriginal women. Chelsea and Amy, thank you for your time this evening. And I'd like to start with your positioning. I want to start our conversation that way, firstly, because as First Nations women, we're often defined by others. And secondly, I think it would be fabulous to know what's really shaped you and your thinking. So Chelsea, can I start with you and ask you to share with us how you define yourself and who and what shaped your worldview? Oh, wow. How would I define myself? I'm Chelsea Wadigo, and my name tells about my ancestry. Wadigo is the name I was born with and denotes my South Sea Islander ancestry, but I'm also a Williams, Manjali mob. I'm a mum of five really cool kids, and I don't know. That's a hard question. That's kind of who I am. Yeah. So and what, the second question was, was... Yeah, sort of who and what shaped your worldview? It was the conversations at our kitchen table that define my worldview and it was the location of that kitchen table, the location of our house in the outer suburbs of Brisbane, working poor. But the kind of the dialogue that we had at our kitchen table is what defined my worldview. And what was interesting is the conversations at our kitchen table lay in stark contrast to the conversations that were had about us outside of our house. And so I hate to do it as a mother, but as a mother, <laughs> the conversations that I have at my kitchen table with my kids is just so important. So I'm very busy all the time, but we have dinner time and we have family time and we have conversations at our kitchen table every night about the world on our terms. And I think that is so important for black families and black households to 
what goes on at our kitchen table and defining the world on our terms before we venture outside our front door. So it's fair to say that's probably where you got the confidence for your voice? I um, would argue with my father over the Courier Mail back in the day. We got it delivered daily and we would read the paper and I would argue with him over news and current affairs. And I was encouraged to, not in a disrespectful way, but I was encouraged to hold my own. And I know it gave my father great joy seeing that I could hold my own. And Amy, what about you? How would you define yourself and who and what's shaped your worldview? And in particular, where did you get your strong voice from? Yeah, um, so my name is Amy McQuire and I'm a Durrumbulan South Sea Islander woman and I grew up on country, very fortunate to grow up from country in Rockhampton, Central Queensland with my large extended South Sea Murray family and my family, the Mans and the Leos and the users. And I was very fortunate to know my family, but more importantly, my family history, um, not just being Durrumbul, but also, as Chelsea mentioned as well, South Sea going over to Vanuatu and just knowing a lot of the history that had been deliberately hidden from our people. And I think my worldview was shaped by that, but more so I think by the stories I did when I became a journalist because I feel like growing up, particularly in, in Rockhampton and in Durrumbul country and country all around central Queensland, you know, this was at the epicentre of the killing fields. And so there was this really suffocating amnesia and I didn't know how to identify that or even see it when I was growing up. And so it was from actually becoming a journalist and talking to mob all around the country, being able to talk to people like yourself, Larissa, and Chelsea and all of these strong, amazing black women that I feel like it really shaped my worldview. And it's something that I'm continually learning. Like I feel like from a 17-year-old to now, I've just learnt so much. So I think my worldview is continually being shaped and it comes from the foundation of growing up on country but also just the voices and the testimonies of blackfellas all around the country who have done the work in so many different forms to make what has happened on this land visible to me and so many other young people and, and just people all across the country, I think. Chelsea, I want to just come back to something that you said that was, you know, I think really fundamental and I think will resonate with a lot of our Indigenous listeners, and that is that the view from the kitchen table is different to the view that people have outside. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain or give us a picture of how you see the role of Aboriginal women in the community, because of course, there are so many stereotypes and images that are formed outside of our community. So I was wondering if you could share with us how you see Indigenous women and the role they play. I'm very fortunate in the work that I do that I get to engage with the stories, the theories, the testimonies, the accounts of Aboriginal women. So in my life, in my everyday life, but also when I go to work and in my job. And so there's an everydayness to it. It's hard to kind of describe it as a thing because I don't know a world outside of it. There is such a generosity to Aboriginal women, and I, I, I don't want to say that in a really condescending way. There's a generosity of Aboriginal women that I think just gets so unrecognised. And there's a generosity even in our anger that black women every day put their bodies on the line for our communities, for our land, for our families, for our knowledges, like just all the time. 
and not to run down the brothers, but it's black women that are really doing the work in this place. But it's also black women who get ridiculed, marginalised, ostracised, discounted, pathologised, demonised. You know, like, it's that generosity, the love that black women have just doesn't get reciprocated in the social world that we occupy. Yet still we turn up, still we give of ourselves. And I guess I've been a beneficiary of the love of Aboriginal women in my personal and professional life. I love reading the writing of black women. It just nourishes and this is my thing during this week about the intellectual work of black women. We're rarely recognised as knowers. You know, we can testify to having bruises on our bodies, but we cannot theorise how they came about. And there's this real undermining of the capabilities of Aboriginal women, of particularly the intellectual capabilities of black women, and what that work does and has done in this place. You know, we, we, the likes of Morton Robinson, the thinkers in this place have been Aboriginal women. We're everywhere. But there's this sense that somehow when it comes to the general public, we're nowhere. And I just don't understand how that works out because that's not the world I live in. It's a really interesting observation and I, I want to come back to that in a minute. Amy, I wanted to ask you the same question as well, picking up on this idea that how we see our community is so different to how outsiders see it. So as a start, when you reflect on what you see in terms of the role that Aboriginal women play within our communities and Torres Strait Islander women play within communities, what do you see? Yeah, I mean, I would so much want to echo everything Chelsea just said, because it's just so true. And I feel like, I mean, what Chelsea was saying about us being knowers, like I see current debates being played out around particularly like issues of violence and solutions or preventative measures to violence. And Aboriginal women know the answers. You know, we've been talking about this for a very long time. We're still considered to be silence or there's this constructed silence brought up around it. And the subject position is always based on the middle class white women or the upper middle class white women. And so, you know, their solutions will ultimately end up hurting black women, but it's it's like an afterthought. And when black women speak up about these issues, they're seen as almost, you know, almost like nuisances or just things to be shoved aside. When really, when you look at the intersections of violence that Aboriginal women stand at, you have to look first at that in order to begin looking at solutions in any other way. And so I feel like Aboriginal women are never seen as um, knowers or the people who are able to propose solutions. Our knowledges and isolations are never just taken seriously. In fact, we're slandered and accused of being complicit in this constructed silence. And so we're seeing that not just in wider Australia, but particularly amongst the white feminist movement currently. You know, when you look around debates of coercive control and these criminalisation of coercive control and really punitive measures to issues that we're dealing with right now, which is sort of like I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but I just really see um, Aboriginal women knowledges and experiences and testimonies are still undervalued. And yet in our communities... I think Aboriginal women are largely the most important voices and we hold very important positions in society that are just so unacknowledged and that's continued from colonial times where we've continually been slandered and seen in these really dehumanising representations that are recurring. So I would echo everything Chelsea has said really and I just think, you know, the dehumanisation of Aboriginal women and the slandering of us has real-life repercussions in the present which we're currently seeing right now and our voices are still not being listened to properly. just want to pick up on 
one thing here, Amy, because as a journalist, you've given really strong voice to Indigenous people and the stories that have mattered to the Indigenous community, often ignored by the mainstream. And I'm thinking particularly of your compassionate reporting from the perspective of victims of crime. What are your observations on how Indigenous media approaches Indigenous voice compared to mainstream media? I think we definitely approach it differently and from that position of strength. But I think there's, you know, I'm sort of just like, this is where I'm currently at, whereas I'm trying to figure out ways that we can report on these issues in ways that don't just replicate mainstream reporting. I've started to think deeply about the fact that journalism as a model is actually sometimes in direct opposition to Aboriginal ways of storytelling. You know, yarning, when you look at when you're talking to victims of crime, it doesn't fit in with the current journalistic model, if you know what I mean. Like, you've got to spend time, you have to build relationships, and you have to do it in a way that incorporates history as context, but also ensures that the voices of victims, and a lot of my PhD research has been around Aboriginal women as victims of violence, that their voices aren't lost and that we're not just re-compounding the wounds that have been perpetrated against them already. And so I think there's actually, you know, a wider conversation that even Indigenous media have to have about how we do things currently because so often the conversation has been about getting blackfellas into mainstream media. And I think that's the totally wrong approach. I think it's building up a black media that is just almost like a black versions of white media but have a new way of storytelling that involves really providing a voice and some form of justice for um, victims of crime. So that's a really long-winded way of saying I think Aboriginal media has a real role we can play in communities because of the accountability factor, but I feel like we can do better and find different ways of reporting because I think so often that current journalistic methods are just totally against Aboriginal ways of storytelling and Aboriginal ways of writing and knowing. I'm also reminded that there's often a tendency when people are interviewing to cut people off. And one thing that we try not to do on speaking out is cut people off because our mob always have a certain way they want to tell a story and how they want it's us true. to get to the point. Yep. So I, can, I was feeling a lot of sympathy. Chelsea, as somebody who's been a contributor to public debate and become, I think, a person whose views really represent the lived experience of a lot of Aboriginal women. I know when I hear you speak on an issue, what you say often articulates what I'm feeling. And I was wondering if you could reflect on the fact that there aren't a lot of Aboriginal women who are commentators. There are probably more now asked to do things. But there are obviously a range of issues and complications that face an Aboriginal woman who seeks to speak out or be a voice and contribute to debates that everyone else is contributing with. And I was wondering if you could share with us your experiences on the challenges you've faced in being heard as an Aboriginal woman who is actually asked to participate in public debate and commentary and has generously accepted that place. Yeah, look, I think those who know me know that I can't hold my mouth. That's <laughs> kind of why we like you, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, I'm conscious that when I speak, I'm speaking from a place and a place that I can speak from. So, you know, in this day and age, people are asked to comment all kinds of things. And as much as there's things I can't hold my mouth on, there are things that I say I'm not the best person to speak about that because I haven't got a relationship to that knowledge to be speaking for it. I know AIM is the same. We have an ethics of practice around what we speak when we speak and what offers we accept as well because we have a responsibility, I think, as public intellectuals 
to contribute to public discourse where we have expertise that can be brought to bear and not just be these kind of figureheads because everyone's looking for an Indigenous voice and, the, you know, the events of last week show that any Indigenous person will do kind of thing. You know, I was first invited to the drum as a sports fan, not as a scholar which I'm not even a sports fan. So I feel very privileged that I do have an outlet to be able to speak about the world and my frustrations with it because it is a real privilege. But in doing so, there's responsibilities about who are we speaking for and there are some things, a lot of things I can't speak about that I say, no, I'm not the best person, but I recommend someone who should. And privileging those with the lived experience of something as opposed to those who have studied it. I think there's an ethics there that we have to be conscious of. We need to be having that conversation as mob when we enter into the public domain, you know, who speaks and how we strategize as mob collectively around who should be put forward on a particular issue. And we do that. People don't realise we have these conversations. It is challenging at times because there are people who see you as almost like a caricature that you're just a mouth. But what people don't realise is that many of us have day jobs. We're doing the work. And so that commentary is an outlet for the work that is at the foundation of this. And so I think it's really important, particularly in the you know age of social media, that people remember their day jobs and that we've got work to do. And some of this public commentary stuff, while it's important, it can't be your only work. And the stuff that we speak of, it has to come from somewhere, from an evidence base, from experience, particularly in the absence of not having a coordinated Indigenous voice, part of the pun, like we once had with ADSIC and regional councillors and all that kind of stuff. Given that we've got all these different voices that aren't necessarily speaking on behalf of nations, we have to really have this conversation about what is our ethics of practice around contributing to public discourse as blackfellas to each other and to our own mob and to our communities. Not just being a figurehead or a commentator, this is about how do we transform the social world that we're living in and how do we use the public square as a site to kind of shift things at the margins in some kind of way. This has to be about strategy, not just about likes and follows and fans. Before I go back to Amy, Jelsey, I just want to ask you perhaps a similar reflection in a different context because, of course, you're one of our leading First Nations academics What do you see as the continuing barrier for our mob in the academy and particularly for women in terms of their voice and their expertise and their knowledge being valued? Uh, Can I say 20 years on from the anniversary of talking up to the white woman? (laughs) To put it simply, I mean, it's great to see white women advance in the academy, but the relationship white women are having with Aboriginal women in the academy is one that continues to be one that's really deeply problematic. And, you know, I think about just recently with the special issue in the Australian Feminist Law Journal, having my scholarly work not being published because it might offend a white woman who wrote a book. Like the silencing of Indigenous women's knowledges is ongoing and it's at the hands of white women. And I think that's the sense of betrayal even in these recent events is that when stuff happens to white women, the world stops. But what about when it happens to black women? Like, where is the sisterhood, really? How do we celebrate you know, International Women's Day when we can't even celebrate indigenously what that means in our own country? And so this plays out in the academy. It's not just on TV shows. The location of Indigenous knowledges, and particularly Indigenous women's knowledges, is being marginalised not just by white men, but white women who have advanced through the academy and are making sure that black women know their place. And it's violent, and we need to keep talking about it. 
it's particularly confronting what you experienced when you think of how liberally the concept of academic freedom and the right to speak is defended in the academy, but you still see this silencing. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barron, and tonight my guests are Amy McGuire and Chelsea Watergo. Amy, one of the areas that you've covered in detail is the treatment of Indigenous women in the criminal justice system. You've been a really strong voice, as has Chelsea, in the Black Lives Matter discussions leading up and many decades before it became sort of part of the zeitgeist. So I was just wondering now, we've just seen a couple of continuing deaths in custody in a week. Aboriginal women continuing to die in custody. I know you've really looked at these issues from all sides. What do you see as the key issues that we need to address here? Yeah, and I mean, I think I'm just echoing a lot of Aboriginal women in the past where when you look at the history even around Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, the focus was never on gender or Aboriginal women. And yet over that 30 years, actually this year time period, we saw ridiculous rates of Aboriginal women being locked up. The vast majority of Aboriginal women who are in prison right now are victims of violence and the justice system is a site of violence. Mainstream Australia doesn't see these institutions, justice system, child protection system, education system, health system, these systems as sites of violence in themselves. And so what we're seeing now is Aboriginal women, but Aboriginal people as a whole, Aboriginal men, women and children are being blamed for the violence that is continually perpetrated against them by these systems. And I think that's what's happened in relation to deaths in custody is that Aboriginal people, when you are put into custody, and a lot, if we're talking about Aboriginal women, majority of them, we have such high rates of remand, so they haven't even been convicted of anything. Once they're in jail, they are criminalised, they're seen as completely less than people. And so this violence, this state-sanctioned violence, is seen as totally invisible, and so we become responsible for that violence. And I think that's what's happened where Australia can't see Aboriginal women as people. And we've had so many horrendous cases. Like I'm just thinking of Jodie Gore over in Western Australia who was convicted and put in jail for defending herself against her abusive partner. And that was just recently overturned from the advocacy of Aboriginal women like Hannah McGlade. And just the fact that she was criminalised for defending herself against abuse and violence. And that was not seen as an issue. And that was, you know, how many years since the case of Robin Keener over in Queensland. And so I think it comes down to that fundamental issue of not seeing Aboriginal women as people, not seeing Aboriginal women as worthy of mourning, as worthy of grieving, and fundamentally seeing the violence that's perpetrated against Aboriginal women as legitimate. And I think that's something that we're still tackling and we're still fighting against today because When you look at the cases that have prominence in Australia, very few of them have been Aboriginal women. And yet when you look at the cases in the Royal Commission, 11 Aboriginal women were in cases were investigated under the Royal Commission. So many of them had similarities to cases that have happened now, Ani Tanya Day, um, Miss Jew, Miss Ma. And Aboriginal women are locked up basically for being Aboriginal women, you know, for walking along the street like Miss Ma, for being victims of violence like Miss Jew for being visibly Aboriginal on a train like Miss Day, you know, and the fact that they're seen as criminals when they had been abused and when they had been victims of violence and then are further subjugated to these levels of violence in these systems is such an outrage and we don't need the numbers. One case is enough. If you look at any case, you look at the cases currently underway in the coroner's courts, one case should shock Australia out of its complacency, but it doesn't. 
And so that makes me think that Australia is incredibly comfortable with the deaths of Aboriginal women, men and children at the hands of their systems. And they, you know, law and order policies are electorally popular. In my hometown of Rockhampton, the Labor government announced an expansion of the prison as a way for, you know, jobs. So we're still in this this idea that, you know, Australia doesn't care about the lives of Aboriginal people incarcerated because to them they're seen as less than people, if not people at all. Chelsea, I know you'll have a lot to add to that because your work has also been in this space, but you've also made enormous contributions to understanding how discrimination against our mob and particularly women occurs in the health sector. I was just wondering if you could talk to us about what you see as some of the key issues and challenges that we're facing following on from the sorts of things that Amy's been raising awareness of. Yeah, I think, you know, there's rightly so a lot of attention to Aboriginal deaths in custody. And of course, this week we're reminded of the ongoing state-sanctioned violence that blackfellas are subjected to. And our hearts go out to the families who are grieving right now. Like this is, it's now, it's happening right now. And the indifference to black trauma uh, and black deaths is this place is so comfortable with the idea of a dying race. And in fact, it's invented that mythology that we were destined to die. And they've not relinquished that idea. And we see this violence play out, not just in custody. We see the violence play out in what's supposed to be a caring system, and that is the healthcare system. So as someone who's trained in public health, what struck me is the fact that the health system makes these claims to care. It talks about duty of care, yet when it comes to care for blackfellas, it's suddenly not there. And in fact, oftentimes, black women who are seeking health care often face the violence of the state in all kinds of ways, whether it's police-assisted emergencies, Aboriginal being perceived as a threat in the course of seeking health care, we are seeing in this time, in this era of closing the gap, blackfellas still dying of preventable and avoidable conditions because we have a health system that doesn't care for blackfellas because it was never designed to. And people don't realise that health care for Indigenous peoples, for our benefit, is still a relatively new phenomenon. I was 10 years of age when this nation first had an Aboriginal health strategy. We had no coordinated approach in this country to improving the health of Indigenous peoples until 1989, and even then that wasn't implemented. Yet the Australian public health system was aware of this dying race. In fact, it alibied it as though it was somehow meant to be, there was an inevitability to it. So the whole foundation of this country is premised on us not existing. And all of the systems are working together really nicely to make sure that happens. And that's why we talk about the colonial violence as ongoing. It's never stopped. They haven't relinquished the idea of terra nullius. They haven't relinquished their commitment to race and to racial violence. And I guess what frustrates me as someone who works in health is that we have a system that makes all these claims of benevolence and care when we know it's inherently violent. And one of the things I guess makes me wild amongst my own colleagues who work in Indigenous health is the refusal to be courageous about speaking about race in this place. And unfortunately, we've got too many of our mob who are still committed to regulating, surveilling the body parts and the behaviours of Indigenous peoples instead of the violence of the structures and systems of which we are all a part of. And I'm sick of our own mob talking about culture and cultural safety while being silent about racial violence. 
you can't have one without the other. And I think that we've got a long way to go for our own mob in actually being courageous when it comes to speaking about race and racial violence because our people need us to be. Chelsea, I want to just pick up on something really important that you've said that's been a really central part of your work and has really enriched our understanding of structural and systemic racism. I know it's certainly increased my understanding of it and I've been able to apply it in really practical ways. In terms of attacking that structural and systemic racism that's been inherited, as you say, it's a part of the structures of colonialism and an integral part of the culture and fabric of our society, what changes do we need to see to start to unpick that? Well, look, I think, you know, I was trained in public health, both undergrad and postgrad qualifications, specifically focused on Indigenous health. Now, no one taught me about race throughout that whole time. Like, I came to race quite late in, in my career. So a starting point means we need to actually do the intellectual work around race and racism within the disciplines. Why aren't the health sciences dealing with race, yet at the same time still producing racialized knowledge about the you know, incapabilities of Aboriginal people to make better health choices? It's committed to racism, but not thinking about race intellectually. And, and that's a big problem here in terms of our ability to do anything around race and racism is that we can't study it here. We can't even talk about it here. And, and I guess that's why I'm interested in the intellectual work is how do we create these intellectual spaces to be able to understand these things so that we can strategize better. You know, when I first worked as an Aboriginal health worker, I had to roll out the two-day compulsory employer-sanctioned cultural awareness training as if we just had to teach them about a culture to stop them from being so violent. That strategy was only ever violent to the Aboriginal people who had to deliver the training to these people and the racial taunts that we were subjected to. But I didn't have the tools, the techniques, the understanding to then strategize better around it. And so I guess that's part of my goal in terms of the kind of work we're trying to advance is creating an intellectual space to understand how these systems and structures work so that we can intervene. We have an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health policy right now that has as its vision a health system free of racism. But you go to the plan, there is no strategy for eliminating the racism in the health system because they don't even know how to understand it. And at the moment, what we're doing in health research is counting how many times people experience self-reported overt racial discrimination, which is a kind of racism. It's not all of it. So as researchers, we're not doing the work in understanding a race and racism better, and we have to understand it in order to better strategize around it. And there's no quick fix on this because what we know about race is it's foundational, not aberrational, and it's not going anywhere. All we can do is continue to try and strategize and try and undermine the violence of it. We will never do away with it altogether. Amy, it strikes me that one of the really powerful things about your work is that you give voice to people who are marginalised and it not only empowers them or gives them a sense of being heard, being able to have their say, but it also helps to change the dominant narratives that are so pervasive and a really big part of the structural ecology that Chelsea is talking about. What are your thoughts on on how we can start to shift some of these structural and systemic challenges and barriers through the use of storytelling and voices? And do you see truth-telling as a process that can play a role in this? Yeah, because um, one of the things I've sort of been thinking about quite a lot just over the past few years, but it actually I, I realised it's been something that's building over 10 years, is that particularly when we're talking about violence, and I felt like I've fallen into this trap before where there are ways that these really dehumanising representations of Aboriginal women have been used against us and are a form of violence in itself. 
And I feel like currently in the media, so often that's replicated and that continues. And so for me, I think finding a way to honour victims of violence, but also honour the strength of communities, our ties to country, our ties to community, our ties to culture is incredibly important because I think one of the goals of that representational violence was obviously to continue the colonial project and eliminate us and our presence from this land. And so for me, it's been about not only trying to privilege the voices of Aboriginal men, women and children, but also ensure that their presence is still on this land and that that acts as a resistance to this overwhelming violence that's continually perpetrated against us. And I think that's what's missing. And I don't think mainstream media will ever be able to incorporate it because the mainstream media as a structure is violent in itself. And we know that from so many Aboriginal journalists and media workers who work in mainstream settings, you know, who are forced to conform to the mainstream ways of storytelling. And that's why we have black media as a way to circumvent that, but also act as a form of resistance to that. So I think in that sense, black media has a really important role to play, as Chelsea was saying, and to continually undermine and resist this racial violence. And I think through the power of storytelling, that's an integral way. You know, you talk to any elder in community, but anyone in community, and you can sit down and have the biggest yarn. And there's always something in those yarns. And I always learn something from that. And I feel like what Australia doesn't understand is that there's this continual attempts from Australia to divorce ourselves from history. And we see that debates over Australia Day, you know, the types of storytelling they do on Anzac Day is all predicated on, on amnesia. With Aboriginal mob, in every community, history is very present. It's alongside us. You know, it can never be forgotten. And that's what's incorporated. It's almost like not a linear way of storytelling. It goes back and forth and back and forth. And I think that's something that the mainstream media can't recognise and that's to its detriment. But it's like this health system that Chelsea was saying, it's set up to recognise that because it has a purpose. I think truth-telling in whatever form it is, is very important as long as it includes, you know, the really important part of it should be justice. Because I feel like sometimes when white Australia starts catching on to aspirations that Aboriginal mob have, there's those attempts to water it down. And so it's about appeasement of white guilt. It's about centering white people first and foremost. And so I think truth-telling has to be formulated by blackfellas first and foremost, rather than be co-opted as so many other things are being co-opted by white Australia, and I think that's the real challenge. But I think truth-telling, which includes calls for justice in what forms blackfellas want, is a really important part of where we need to go as a country. Just want to pick up on what you've said in a more global way. There are obviously huge differences in the history of Australia and the history of the United States, but both are countries that still grapple with the legacies of their past. And there's always been a really important exchange of ideas between our communities here and both African and First Nations communities in the United States, particularly around issues of race and gender and that intersectionality. Chelsea, I was wondering what your observations have been about the state of politics in the United States, and particularly in terms of any warnings and lessons it might have for Australia. Yeah, look, I think it's been interesting, I think, in this global Black Lives Matter movement is the redefining what it is to be black and what the kind of emancipatory aims that we have and that they're not always shared. And oftentimes we are to look to the US to see what we can learn from there, particularly when it comes to race. 
But my argument and that of others here is that maybe they could learn something from us here about what it means to be black and the function of race work because we are First Nations and First Race. We are black and Indigenous. We have a unique vantage point when it comes to rethinking around race and sovereignty. And maybe we could think about how the US could look to hear, particularly First Nations and black communities there could learn from what a black humanity looks like from this place. Because oftentimes our blackness is measured against, our indigenousness is measured against everyone from elsewhere. But as Annie Little points out, we became human here. So maybe we could be the foundations of defining a black humanity here. And I wonder what that kind of intellectual and political work might look like when it's grounded in this place, first and foremost. That's a really interesting intellectual process to go through. I'm waiting to see what that looks like too. Amy, just from your perspective, obviously one of the things that's been a characteristic of what we've seen in the United States is the overt rise of white supremacy and the very active role it's taking in politics. It's always sat there possibly a little bit more marginalised than it's been and almost as a response to the rise of the Black Lives Matter and the rise of more visible people of colour in places of power. Just from that perspective and knowing how much work you've done yourself in looking at crimes against Aboriginal people here that are motivated by white racial supremacy, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on what you've seen in the United States and what lessons it might have for us here in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting as well how Australians like to outsource their outrage about what happens and even their shock about what's happening in the US when looking here, I mean, you look at what happened in relation to the Christchurch massacre, the perpetrator, you know, the mass murderer was raised in Australia. We that have that history of white supremacy right here. In fact, I think, you know, you could argue by the time that, you know, invasion happened over here, they had very much fine-tuned what they were doing and it was incredibly brutal and incredibly violent what they were doing in relation to settler colonialism. So this country has a foundation of white supremacy. That's what it's built on. And it's very blatant. I mean, we had the white Australia policy. And so I think when Australians look overseas and, you know, they see the rise of fascism overseas, you know, looking in their backyard, you know, it's currently ingrained in all of our institutions. But the problem is it's not visible because the victims and the most vulnerable people are Aboriginal people. And, you know, the racism that's continually against blackfellas means that, you know, they can't see that. And so they like to think that this is some sort of lucky country or oasis when it's not at all. And I was just thinking about in the context, you know, of Black Lives Matter and, you know, the outrage across the world in relation to seeing that video footage of George Floyd. People like to think that that outrage is, you know, it's a human response and that it's just such a blatant act on camera that you can't help but turn away. But there had been so many cases of murders on camera of black people over in the US that hadn't created that similar outrage. And so you look at all of the work that had been done in the lead up through the strategy, the protesting, through the continual resistance from black organisers, that's what made that visible. That's what made the outrage. It didn't just come like that. There was a lot of work that led up to it. And that's something that blackfellas have been doing over here. You know, there's been so much work over the decades in order to make that violence visible. And we've had that CCTV footage in which white Australians can't see that violence to the same extent. So I think that's part of the problem is Australians like to think that that is not a problem. White supremacy, the far right, fascism is not a problem over there when it is deeply ingrained in our own country. And the problem, of course, is that Australians are complicit in it, so they don't want to look into it. And we've had outright white supremacists in places, you know, Rocky, 
we had stuff like that. You know, there's always talk of like the KKK and, and things being around that. You look over in Kalgoorlie and just the outright racism that you can taste in the air. You look at Alice Springs and literally the apartheid-like bylaws that they put in place in order to over-surveil Aboriginal people on the street and the anti-intervention as a whole. You know, that's all racist. That's all white supremacist. And yet Australians are comfortable with it completely, you know, and they, they water down the language. And so I think that's part of the problem is Australians like to look overseas and say that's not happening here because they can't see it because they don't want to see it. So I think that's a key part of the problem. Now, speaking of the power of voice, of our women's voices, you both have books coming out or coming. Chelsea, what can you share with us about your forthcoming book, Another Day in the Colony? Because I know I can't wait to get my hands on it. (laughs) It's a series of essays and it's a book written for blackfellas. It's a book that I want to see on the bookshelves of black homes and not in the hands of white women. Good ways they can buy it if they want to. So it's a conversation. It's it's kind of taking the kitchen table conversation to other kitchen tables in other black homes, really. It is a little bit of, it's a lot of story. Who am I kidding? Lots of yarns and yarns I've had with blackfellas about thinking about the world. It's an academic text, but not written for academics. I've written it to be in conversation with Mob and I hope it sparks lots of conversations because it doesn't have solutions. It has some kind of conversations around strategies. It will contain the unpublishable article that the Feminist Law Journal deemed unpublishable, which turns out is publishable. So take that. You can check that article out. And I guess the final chapter I'm really excited about and looking forward to the conversations that we're going to have, it's called Fuck Hope. And I'm trying to make a case for retiring hope as an emancipatory strategy for black people. That sounds fantastic. Now, Amy, tell us how you came to write Daybreak and why that was a story that was so close to your heart. Yeah, well, I was actually approached to look at, you know, sort of a kid's book about contesting the lies of Australia Day. And it sort of became more about just celebrating the survival and the everyday resistance of Aboriginal families on that day. Because I just started thinking about, you know, the ways that blackfellas remember and the ways that we celebrate survival and the ways that we enact our own sovereignty. And so it's about a journey for an Aboriginal girl and her father and grandmother back to country. And they continually contest the lies that she's been taught by the education system. And it ends up with them going back to country. And I just, I'd never really written for children before, but I have, I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old and just seeing them read and ask questions and seeing which bits that stood out to them was just really important to me. And I think it was, you know, one of the most powerful or most important pieces of writing I could have done, writing directly to our children. And just the one thing that has always stood out to my daughter and she goes back to the pages is the bits about her ancestors. And I think that just shows the themes that Aboriginal children pull out. And I think that's just really important because I know when I went to school, like I didn't see anything of myself in picture books or even history classes, I went to a time where we didn't learn anything. I know that's changed for some kids now, but I didn't know nothing. And so just teaching our history from that position of strength and celebrating our survival and our very differing ways of enacting sovereignty in the everyday was just really important for me to stress. So yeah, that's how it sort of come about. What sort of future do you want for your children, Amy? Well, I really hope that You know, particularly my daughter, she grows up in a country in which she is not continually demeaned or dehumanised for being an Aboriginal woman. But I just hope she 
grows up knowing the strength of who she are and that she comes from this amazing legacy and this foundation of strong black women. But I think she already knows that. (laughs) It's really interesting to see how she speaks and how she talks compared to, you know, when I was growing up. And I think that's the same for a lot of Durumbal kids in Rocky. Like they're growing up with a really strong sense of culture and identity and revitalization. And that's a process that's ongoing. So I hope she has those tools in order to resist, you know, what is actually happening in this place. What about you, Chelsea? Yeah, I'm, I'm not hopeful. I'm not hopeful about the world that they inhabit, but I am determined that whatever the world holds for them, that they will stand strong on who they are and where they come from. I'm really interested in, in yarns with Mob about what sovereignty is as embodied in the everyday. And I love that... I have a child who is escorted out of assembly every week because she refused to stand for that anthem, that she continues to wear her rainbow-coloured shoelaces despite it breaching some unnamed shoelace policy because she believes she's worthy of representing in that way. So I do this work so that my children can do what they need to do in order to survive in the world that we're forced to live in right now. I did want to ask you both because you both work so hard, you have families, you continue to work in the really tough places and you both speak on issues that are really difficult to speak about and you both do that in in a public way which has its own cost for women, particularly women from our community, for our Aboriginal First Nations women. So I was just wondering if you could share with us how you look after your own well-being, how you stay strong so that you can be strong for everyone else. I was wondering if you could share that wisdom with us. And I'll start with you, Chelsea. So funny you mention it because I've been writing about self-care and the oft-quoted Audrey Lord who said self-care is an act of political warfare. Look, I don't do bubble baths and massages. I do seek out joy quite deliberately. And if you watch my Insta stories, I make sure that my life is full of joy. I make sure that I have fun in my life. But I don't see self-care as something that can be divorced from the struggle. And when Audrey wrote that essay about self-care, she was fighting cancer while travelling the world, fighting the patriarchy and fighting racism. So she didn't separate it out. And I think people have mistaken self-care as something you do. It's a kind of retreat from the front line. I find joy in the fight, not away from it. And that's what survival is, right? If we're going to be in this ongoing colonial project, we have to think about survival as ongoing all the time and not something we can step away from or retreat from. And so I'm very conscious about making sure that in the course of things that I've got the right people around me to be able to laugh with, to cry with, and that will stand with you because not everyone will stand with you in these kinds of battles. And so I think we need to redefine what self-care is Loving black people is my form of self-care. Fighting for black people is how I exercise self-care because I see myself as part of that struggle and I believe that I'm worth fighting for, therefore I'm worth caring for. So I see it as bound up in in the struggle, not separate from it. And advice to live by. What about you, Amy? Yeah, I'm glad Chelsea went first because I was thinking, oh, I don't really do much, but then I think when self-care defined by Chelsea. (laughs) I think particularly like within the context of sort of the stories I'm currently working on, I really felt like I was supposed to follow that. And I feel like that that come from the ancestors and just 
you know, particularly a story I was I'm continually doing in Rockhampton, which was based around the murder of a really amazing, strong Aboriginal woman. And the man who was found guilty for that crime spent 29 years in prison. His name's Kevin Henry. Like I couldn't turn away from that story, not only because Kevin Henry was sitting in jail, but also because of what had happened to Linda, who was a victim, and just the way that the justice and the media and everything just completely dehumanized her both in life and in death. It was just something I couldn't turn away from. And there were just certain things that happened, particularly going back to Rockhampton. I was in Rockhampton for three years, largely because of that story. I felt like it was really like the ancestors were calling me to do that. And there were just so many weird coincidences that happened. So it was sort of like I had to do it. Like that sounds really airy fairy and everything like that, but it just, it felt like the truth. And so I never really thought of things in relation to self-care until it was defined by Chelsea. And I think that would be, and I think that's what drives so many other Aboriginal women. It really comes from something bigger than us. I really think it comes from our ancestors on country and being connected to that country and knowing that there is some sort of bigger thing that we're supposed to do. And I think that might be where my self-care comes in, just knowing that these issues are too important to turn away from and that there are reasons that things are speaking to you in certain ways. And you literally just can't turn away from it. I think that's what I get my strength from personally. It doesn't matter what happens on country, what has happened. You know, I was just talking about Rockhampton being an epicenter of the killings and just this crazy amnesia in relation to the mountains and everything being renamed. Our ancestors are still there and you can't wipe that away. Like I know the river has these secrets, you know, the river that runs through Rockhampton, Tunaba has these secrets that it has never forgotten. And so to, I think, white listeners, that might sound crazy and airy-fairy, but it's just very real to us. And I think that's where my self-care comes from, knowing that it is just a bigger story than, than what they want to tell us. I feel that that's where our survival is. You know, as long as we're present on this land, we're going to continue and we just continue fighting. I think that's where my self-care comes from. Well, I have to say I've been doing this show for a long time, but this has been one of my all-time favourite interviews. I just learned so much from both of you, both with your work and just even from having the privilege of having a yarn. And I'm really honoured to have been able to have these conversations and present your wisdom, your intellect and your experience that you share so generously to us with the listeners of Speaking Out. So thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thank you so much, Larissa. Chelsea Wadigo is an Associate Professor with the Faculty of Health and Behavioural Sciences at the University of Queensland. She is the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Another Day in the Colony. Amy McGuire is a freelance writer and journalist and has previously held roles as a political correspondent for NITV and as editor of the National Indigenous Times. Her new children's book is called Daybreak. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we profile the life and career of Aboriginal historian John Maynard. I was 39 years of age. I mean, I'd never set foot in a university. And my father, it was, it said to me, he wanted me to put, as he said, the old man story together for us as a family. I mean, it was a undertaking a family history project. And he wanted the story told of, you know, my grandfather's fight for Aboriginal rights. And it was no bigger project than doing that for the family and doing it up in a nice exercise book and putting in some of the photographs that the family retained and some letters and some newspaper cuttings and then for me to write it up and 
present it to the family. But of course, I also ventured amongst the libraries and archives that I was going to and little historical societies, I ventured to the University of Newcastle to ask for advice on other areas that I might explore, you know, that they might advise me to go and look at. But I was kidnapped into doing a diploma course and then a BA (laughs) (laughs) and then a PhD and finished up a professor. But it was all about my grandfather's story and that never altered from the time undertaking my father's wish to put the family history together and and realising, you know, what an incredible history this was. And as I said, coming through a school system and looking at Australian history where we were absent, we were missing from the page. And yet how could this story of the 1920s where an all-Aboriginal political organisation gained such incredible media coverage and made such an impact were overlooked, quickly forgotten and, you know, erased from not just the historical page but memory, even for us. And that was a process of erasing Aboriginal memory and certainly inspiration. And, I mean, I think that was a process that was underway. So my grandfather's story for me, he's a guiding light for me of what he stood for, what he said, and it's so relevant even today, the whole issue of a national land rights agenda self-determination, protecting the Aboriginal family, that Aboriginal people should be in charge of Aboriginal affairs, all of these things which are today still on it. And that just shows how little progress we've made, you know, in the 90, nearly 95 years since the establishment of the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association back in 1924. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Thank you.